You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 14. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, where we bring you engaging conversations about wildlife conservation issues from all across the globe. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Each month on the show, we pick a theme, and this month we are focusing on vulture conservation efforts. Now, vultures as a group are facing pretty dire population level threats all across the globe. Vulture declines have been most dramatic in India and Southeast Asia, where many areas have experienced 95% population declines over a period of just 10 years. African vultures are also facing dire threats, and our guest on today's show has been working to determine the causes of these declines and what can be done to prevent them. Corinne Kendall completed her doctoral research in the Maasai Mara Reserve in Kenya. Her research involved using satellite telemetry to track vultures and study their movement patterns. Through this research, she was able to prove that the poisoning of domestic livestock carcasses, which is done with the intention of killing lions and hyenas, is the primary cause behind dramatic declines in East African vulture populations. Her research represents an incredibly important step towards saving East Africa's vultures and making sure that a population crash, like what happened in India and Southeast Asia, is prevented. We're going to jump into this interview and let Corinne explain why it's so important to save East Africa's vultures in just a minute. But first, we're going to check in with Ben Mirren, who has a brand new vulture-themed segment of The Birds and the Beats for us. Thanks, Matt. Welcome to The Birds and the Beats, everyone. In honor of the vultures that are our focus in today's podcast, I'm pleased to present a composition made entirely from their voices. Now, one of the challenges facing vulture conservation is also a challenge in this musical process. On top of getting a bad rap for being less than beautiful, and perhaps for feasting on carrion, vultures don't always sound that nice. There are a lot of guttural hisses and croaks in their vocal repertoire, and if you try to imitate them like I do, you'll lose your voice in about 10 seconds. But the key is to break through that barrier. Just like we need to get closer to the vultures in order to understand how they clean up the savannas of Africa and stop the spread of disease, we need to buckle down and listen for the more subtle musical inflections in their voices in order to create something catchy and fun to listen to. Here's a bit of my song built up from square one so you can hear each of the elements as they enter the mix. Again, all of these sounds come from vultures, except for the drums. I'll be beatboxing those. And... Thank <laughs> you. 
So there it is. Well, Ben, I'm continually amazed by your ability to turn bizarre bird sounds into incredibly catchy beats. So tell me a little bit about some of the sounds that we're hearing in there. Well, the most important sound in the mix, I think, is this one. It's the call from the Rupel's Vulture, and it really defined the groove for this track. It was recorded in Tanzania, just south of Kenya, where, as I understand it, Corian Kendall has been doing vulture research. We also have sounds from other vultures in the same region, like the white-backed vulture. Now these are, of course, excerpts from a longer recording, but in composing, I paired that with a fascinatingly musical wing beat of a black vulture, the full recording of which sounds like this, which I then sampled to create the other main riff with the white-backed vulture. Okay, so you're mixing Old World and New World vultures in there. The black vulture is, of course, a North American species. That's right. Actually, this black vulture was recorded in Oklahoma. But when it comes to conservation, these birds still face the same prejudice from people who may fail to recognize their environmental value. Matt, as you well know, there is perhaps no greater illustration of this unfortunate trend than in the conservation narrative of the California condor, which in this song was our bass synth. (coughs) That's a grunt from a captive condor feeding on a carcass. That's great that you got a condor vocalization in there. Having spent four years working very closely with this species, the sound of that grunt is quite familiar to me. Of course, condors and other New World vultures don't actually have a syrinx, which is the bird equivalent of vocal cords. So grunting and hissing are about the only vocalizations that these birds are capable of. Yeah, that's right. Unlike many of the world's threatened songbirds, their voices aren't particularly melodious either. At least, not at first listen. The majority of these scavenging birds aren't beautiful in the traditional sense. A lot of them are bald with fierce eyes and fairly drab coloration. You know, I've heard a lot of jokes about how ugly condors and other vultures are, but to be honest, I just don't see it. I really do think that vultures are some of our most strikingly beautiful birds, and California condors in particular, although they do have that bald head, they have the ability to change their head coloration based upon their mood, and it can go from a dull pink color to uh, these bright, vibrant orange colors in just a matter of minutes. So that said, your song this week has definitely given me a whole new appreciation for vulture vocalizations. So thanks for sharing your unique creative abilities with us, Ben, and we'll certainly be hearing from you on the next edition of The Birds and the Beats. Thanks, Matt. Now let's hear from Corinne, who is going to share with us some very practical reasons for why we should be working to conserve vultures. Hi, my name is Corinne Kendall, and I'm the Associate Curator of Conservation and Research at North Carolina Zoo. Well, thanks for coming on the program, Corinne. Um, My first question for you is, how did you first become interested in vultures and vulture conservation? I got interested in vultures from actually some other work on hippos (laughs) that I had been doing in East Africa. So I'd, I'd been interested in in East African conservation issues for a long time. I actually did my master's looking at human-hippo conflict, so mostly crop rating issues where hippopotamuses come into people's farms and eat their maize or their rice. Um, And while I was doing that, I'd I'd noticed vultures and had thought about them um, and had also been hearing a lot about the Asian vulture crisis, this sort of rapid decline of vultures in Southeast Asia. And so I started wondering what was being done about vulture conservation in East Africa. 
And it turned out that there really hadn't been much done. There'd been a lot of studies in the 70s, but there hadn't been much work since then. So it seemed like a good time to kind of start assessing the populations and seeing what was happening with vultures in Africa as well. Fantastic. So I'm going to start right at the beginning here. Um, Why are vultures important? So vultures are a really key species because of the ecosystem services that they provide. They're crucial for waste removal and also for disease prevention. So vultures have these amazingly acidic stomachs, and as a result, they're able to eat all kinds of diseased uh, dead animals, and they tend not to, to get any of those diseases. doesn't seem like disease is a big issue for, for vultures generally. So instead, they're able to eat this, these uh, dead animals and remove the disease from the ecosystem. So it's a really crucial role. They also help to limit population numbers for other scavenging species. And especially as we now have feral dogs increasingly becoming a primary scavenger in many ecosystems all over the world, it, that's pretty crucial because we don't really want huge populations of feral dogs. I guess I wonder, you know, in these areas where these uh, where vulture pelt populations have crashed already, um, I mean, what effects is is this having on, on, on those ecosystems? Yeah, so in Southeast Asia, they've estimated the loss of vultures has cost about $34 billion um, over about a 15-year time period. And a lot of that cost has been because after they lost vultures, the vultures were replaced with feral dogs. So it's it's kind of amazing if you look at the population numbers as the number of vultures goes down, the number of feral dogs starts to go up. And unlike vultures, feral dogs carry lots of diseases and they spread those diseases rather than removing them from the environment the way that vultures do. So they've had a lot of rabies outbreaks as a result of the increased Uh, dog populations, and then they've also seen those rabies outbreaks move into human populations. So there's been a real cost of of human welfare and and human life as a result of the loss of vultures in Southeast Asia. So what makes East Africa and the area that you did your doctoral research in the Maasai Mara Reserve uh, particularly special for vultures? So we've seen vultures decline pretty rapidly in in West Africa, and I think East and Southern Africa are really the strongholds for vulture populations. And the area where I worked in Kenya, in Masai Mara National Reserve, is a particularly unique place for vultures because of migratory ungulates. There's migratory wildebeest and zebra, uh, several million of them, that move between Masai Mara and Serengeti National Park in Tanzania every year. And that creates an enormous food resource for scavengers. I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to uh, come out to uh, Kenya and to visit the Masai Mara and to spend a week or so uh, sort of volunteering on your research project and helping out trapping vultures and also shooting some video um, for this uh, series of short documentaries um, about uh, vultures in East Africa that that folks can watch. Um, and, you know, f- for myself, you know, because I, I also have uh, a background in, in working with vultures. I spent four years working with uh, the endangered California condor um, in the western U.S. Um, and, you know, traveling out to uh, uh, East Africa and visiting the Maasai Mara is just an unbelievable experience, you know. I mean, and, and I'm sure that's the case for, 
you know, biologists and, and folks who appreciate wildlife, you know, all different types of wildlife. But, you know, for folks like myself and like you who, you know, have this uh, particular interest in vultures, I mean, it's just unbelievable, you know, the, the diversity of vulture species. And, um, you know, uh, it, it was just an, an unbelievable experience for me, <laughs> you know, <laughs> difficult to put into words. Um, so I guess I'm wondering if, if you have a memory of what it was like, you know, the, the, the first time you, you visited the, the Maasai Mara, this, this area in East Africa. Yeah, I mean, it definitely it definitely makes an impression. I think just the sheer density of animals in Maasai Mara is unlike what I'd seen anywhere else. Um, I had worked in Ruaha National Park in Tanzania before, uh, and there's there's a lot of wildlife there. Ruaha is a really spectacular place, also, but it doesn't compare to the the numbers and kind of the the magnitude of of wildlife that you see. I mean, watching the wildebeest migration, the sound from the animals is almost deafening. It's just this continuous back and forth communication from wildebeest to wildebeest. And certainly seeing once um, seeing some of the river crossings and the number of animals that die. I mean, we had over 600 wildebeest carcasses all piled up on the rocks in the river and that brings in hundreds and hundreds of vultures. And it's, it's just incredible to see the magnitude of, of sort of death and life that, that comes with migration. I guess I'm, I'm curious to hear a little bit about scavenging guilds from you. Um, and, you know, we talk in these videos about um, how East Africa is one of the last places on Earth that, that still has this sort of, you know, complete... A uh, uh, guild of scavenging species. Um, so, you know, what, wh- I, I guess I'm wondering, like, what what do we mean by that? You know, uh, what is a scavenging guild? So, yeah, the scavenging guild in East Africa is probably one of the most diverse ones in the world. Um, and by guild, it's sort of a suite of species that are all providing a similar function, um, but that each have kind of their own individual role or, or niche within that function. And so in, in Kenya, that ends up including six different vulture species. There's two other uh, raptors, uh, hawks, hawks and eagles, that, also, um, that are also focusing on, on carrion for a large part of their diet. And then layered on top of that are all the mammalian scavengers, jackals and hyenas, um, and even occasionally lions and leopards that are also scavenging for, for some portion of their diet. So it ends up being a lot of very complex interactions between these species. And before I did my, my PhD, most of the work on that had kind of focused on the, the carcass itself and how a carcass gets broken down. Uh, different animals are better at opening a carcass than others. Some animals are, are better at consuming the soft tissues, the intestines, um, sort of the innards of a carcass and other animals are, are kind of the, the smaller cleanup crew that just eat tiny, tiny pieces and have these, you know, animals like hooded vultures that have these amazing tiny beaks that they can sort of insert into a skull and pull out little pieces of meat. So it's amazing the dynamics that go on just in terms of how a carcass gets broken down. The piece that we were able to add to that through my research is then how does that play out across a landscape scale? How, are there trade-offs between species in terms of where they search for food and where they're most likely to, to find and forage, given that there are these differences between individuals? And there, there definitely were, and that's part of what was interesting about what we, we found in Kenya. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that, that leads me right into my next question, which is uh, sort of bringing this back to um, your doctoral research. Um, and so uh, I guess I'm wondering uh, what goals you had at the outset when you were first sort of uh, coming up with your study design for this research project. Um, uh, what what were those initial goals? Yeah, so I think the, the main goals, first and foremost, was just to see what was happening. Um, we, we found out pretty quickly that the vulture numbers were declining. And so then the, the sort of second, secondary goals that came from that was trying to understand why some species of vulture and some scavenging raptors were more susceptible to declines than others. And, you know, we see this in, in every suite of species all over the world. There, there are some animals that, that do great in, in urban environments and probably kind of benefit from the enormous human populations that exist, but there are other species where human uh, population growth and expansion come at a real cost. And so I wanted to kind of understand that same issue at a, at a smaller scale of, of why are some vultures more adaptable? Why are some of them uh, declining faster given the, the threats that were occurring? And part of that also required having a more complete understanding of the threats. We had some pretty good theories as to what was happening, but there wasn't a lot of evidence for it. And so being able to document that was another major goal of, of that work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, I, I, I mean, were these, uh, did, I mean, I, I guess I'm wondering if you discovered anything unexpected through this process? I mean, that, uh, that sort of shifted these goals as you were sort of, you know, working on this project and you're out in the field and, and sort of observing what was going on out, th- out there? Um, I mean, I think one of the most surprising things that came out of this was, you know, it had been hypothesized that vultures originally evolved to focus on migratory ungulates, that they, they had been you know, a hawk or eagle-like species, and over time they'd lost that ability to hunt and became increasingly focused on scavenging, and that they had done that because the migratory um, ungulate populations like these wildebeest and zebra populations were so large that they could just focus solely on scavenging on those animals. So we assumed then that there was going to be a very tight connection between vultures and the migratory herds. Um, Really, the understanding of, of vulture movement had been that the vultures would just follow these herds year-round. So one of the really surprising things that we found is that that, that wasn't the case. Um, vultures do use the migratory herds when, when there's a lot of death, when, when mortality is high during the dry season. But the rest of the year, we see them spreading out to this much larger range, with some individuals going north, others going east, some going south, um, not too many going to the west, but but sort of spreading all across Kenya and even into various other parts of Tanzania, and that was a pretty surprising finding. So I'm wondering what it was like actually working uh, and handling these animals uh, out in the field. Yeah, well, vultures are they're big birds, so I think the largest individual that we trapped was about eight kilograms, so that's almost twenty pounds. And um, they're, they're large birds, and they're large birds that really use their beaks. Vultures are kind of funny because, because they spend so much time on the ground, they basically file their nails down so they don't have sharp talons. They're not trying to grab you with their feet the way that an eagle might. 
So the main thing you have to watch out for on a vulture is that beak, and that beak is attached to a nice, long, very flexible neck, which makes it particularly difficult to control. So it's definitely always an adventure handling these animals. <laughs> uh, was it, uh, and I, that that's certainly true, because I, I, I spent some time out there uh, hel- helping you um, trap them and handle them, and <laughs> yeah, it's it definitely a, an interesting process. Um, I mean, I, how how difficult was it to uh to to trap these birds it's funny because it really depended on the species um for the african white-backed and the repels vulture which i think are kind of they're the vultures that people think of when if you imagine a vulture in your head that's what you're probably imagining these sort of long-necked um large-bodied birds that that are coming down to carcasses and sometimes in hundreds at a time um and so for those species, catching them wasn't as difficult. Handling them handling them definitely could be, um, but catching them wasn't as problematic. What we did really struggle with, as, as you'll remember, was, was trapping the lappet-faced vultures. These are, are a larger bird. They've got um, a much bigger head. They're one of the ones that are really involved in ripping open the, the carcass and eating some of the tough pieces of meat that are, are part of a carcass. Um, but they, they're much more cautious and they're feeding just a few individuals at a single carcass. And so that definitely made them a, a particular challenge to trap. So the primary reason you were trapping these birds was to attach GPS transmitters, um, which was sort of a central component of your research so that you could monitor the movement of these birds. Um, I, I guess I'm wondering, just uh, how did these GPS transmitters work, you know, how, how are you using them to uh, gather this uh, important data for your research? Yeah, so that was one of the things that was neat about this project is it kind of came at the advent of GSM GPS transmitters. So these are a little different than the traditional satellite transmitters that, that people think of. These actually use cell phone networks. So we basically, the, the device itself has a SIM card in it, just like a cell phone. And the data comes from from GPS signals the same way that a a handheld GPS device would work, but then it's actually transmitted back to the researcher through the cell phone network. So you're effectively getting text messages from your vultures telling you where they are. (laughs) That's very cool. Very cool. So, yeah, I mean, you talk about how this is sort of the advent of this type of technology. I mean, would would this research that you did, I mean, would this have been possible without this uh, new technology? I think you still could have done it with satellite telemetry, um, but it would have been a lot more expensive. So I think it was it was interesting to be able to use the GSM GPS units, and and those continue to kind of improve and I think become more available for a variety of species. I think the the vultures we were working on at that time were kind of at the upper limit given the the weight of those units, but moving forward, they're now making those smaller and smaller. And I, I think just like satellite where we're seeing this kind of telemetry used on an even greater number of species. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, how, how were you, how were you attaching these, uh, transmitters to these birds? Um, and, and are they, are, I mean, are these transmitters staying on the birds or are you recovering them, uh, down, down the road? Um, the transmitters we were able to, create backpacks um, out of Teflon. So it's like a Teflon thread, kind of a thick uh, canvas. And then we would 
sew those together using dental floss. So dental floss turns out to be a nice product to use because it's, it's pretty durable. It's waterproof. Um, it's not the easiest thing to sew with, but we were able to construct these backpacks. So effectively the unit sits on the bird's back and then there's little straps that go around each wing and the, the backpacks themselves are designed so that eventually they will wear, wear through and fall off. We were able to actually recover a couple of units by retrapping birds, but generally that's not too feasible. So the hope is that most of those backpacks have, have fallen off by now. So I, I want to talk about the, the results of your research. Um, I mean, we talked a little bit about, you know, some of the things that, that surprised you as, as you're out in the field and as you were conducting this research. Um, but, but I'm curious just to, to hear about, you know, what those primary results were. You know, what, what were you able to uncover through the research uh, that, that you were conducting? So I think for the telemetry part of the study, we were looking at three different species, at white-back vultures, rupels vultures, and lappet-faced vultures. And, and part of the question was, how do these different birds use the landscape? And we got some pretty clear findings. The, the rupels have a much larger range size than the other two species. We had a single individual that used over 200,000 square kilometers in one year which is quite possibly the largest range size of any non-migratory vertebrate. Um, so that was pretty incredible to see. And, and then we had others like the lapid-faced vultures that are really operating on, on a much smaller scale. The, the lapid-faced vultures that we trapped were mostly feeding in Masai Mara, somewhat in Serengeti, and, and really not going too much farther than that. So it was interesting to see how these three uh, species operate at completely different scales within the same landscape. And part of the explanation of that comes from, from how they use the carcass and from, from how they forage. I was also doing behavioral studies and road-based studies of, of habitat use. So we were putting out experimental carcasses and seeing who feeds in different areas. So who feeds inside the park versus outside the park how does the number of individuals feeding change when you're in an area with very high wildlife density versus with lower wildlife density? Um, and then we also, in addition to those experimental carcasses, we did roadside counts in different areas to see where birds are aggregating. And that's really where some of the, the most interesting findings came in terms of understanding why some species are declining faster than others. We found that species that are feeding primarily outside of the protected areas that are feeding more um, preferentially in areas with low wildlife density. So these are often species that are subordinate. So they're, they're the ones that are going to be the last to feed if there's a lot of other birds at a carcass. And so they've evolved specifically to, to use poorer quality habitats as a way to reduce competition. But right now, poor quality habitats generally ends up meaning areas outside of the protected area. And unfortunately, those are the areas where poisoning is occurring. And poisoning is usually done by pastoralists who lose a cow or, or another um, animal to lions or hyenas. And out of frustration, they try to kill the lions and hyenas by putting poisons, mostly pesticides um, like carbofurans, onto those carcasses to try and kill the lions and hyenas. And more often than not, that ends that, that poisoning ends up killing vultures more than anything. 
So what we saw from this other research is that those subordinate species that are feeding in poor quality habitats, they're the ones that are most heavily impacted by the poisoning and thus declining the fastest. So I want to jump into some of the conservation implications um, of your research. Uh, but before we do that, I, I just want to, um, I want to get a little bit more information about this issue of this poisoning issue. Um, and, you know, sort of the, the, the big picture effect that this is having on vulture populations across East Africa. So I, I guess my question for you is, is how serious is this issue of, of vulture poisoning in East Africa? So I think poisoning continues to be probably the number one cause of declines for vultures in East Africa. And what we saw is there's not a lot of historic data, but from the historic information that we have, it looks like vultures have declined by about 50% over the last 30 years. And what we were finding with the telemetry units is that you could have up to 25% annual mortality from poisoning events. And this is for adult vultures. Um, a healthy vulture population, adult mortality should be about maybe 5% or even less. So if you've got 25% annual mortality, you're going to knock out the population very, very quickly. And so it's really a serious issue. Um, unfortunately, because of the way that vultures feed, where hundreds of individuals are feeding at a single carcass, if that carcass is poisoned, that means you're going to kill over 100 individuals in just one poisoning incident. So it, it makes it a very dramatic um, event for these, these animals. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, one of those videos that, that, um, that, that we produced, uh, sort of focusing on your, your research, but also focusing on uh, vulture declines in general um, across East Africa, uh, so, sort of documents, you know, one particular poisoning event where close to 200 vultures were, um, were killed as a result of, you know, a single cow carcass being poisoned. Um, I, I wonder if, I mean, did you ever encounter anything like that? Did you ever, you know, uh, come across uh, uh, a, a large-scale poisoning incident like that in your time in East Africa? Um, most of the poisoning is done in secret. And so we, we, we saw some areas where poisoning was likely to have, have occurred, but I never came across one sort of as it was occurring with, with birds actively feeding and, and dying at the time. But we did see some other sites where there were multiple individuals um, dead in a single area, which, which pretty strongly indicates that, that poisoning may have occurred there. I, I mean, what are the conservation implications of your research? I mean, what, you know, how can you take this information that, that you um, uh, uncovered through your research with vulture populations um, and, and use that to, to help address this issue of, of vulture poisoning? I think um, some of the clear applications of the research that came out. One, one is that we got a better sense of where the poisoning is happening. It isn't all areas outside the park. I think the areas where, where it's most problematic are places that are in within sort of 20 to 50 kilometers of the border of the park, where you do still have carnivore populations, you do still have fairly large uh, wildlife populations, and those are the areas where when poisoning happens, it's particularly problematic. You're more likely to have a larger number of vultures foraging in that area. Um, and so we, we found several places like that through the telemetry work 
that, that are probably good areas to focus on for future conservation activity. The other implication was just just being able to document the declines. Um, there are so many species where we just don't have enough data to really know what's happening. And I think being able to, to document how dramatic the declines were, how high the potential mortality rate from poisoning was, I think those end up being useful pieces of data to make a strong argument that this is a set of species we need to be thinking about more and we need to be focusing on more um, in terms of conservation. So what what do you see as the next step forward for for vulture conservation efforts in in this region? Um, I mean, I think we have to find solutions to the poisoning. And there's been some work to try and ban poisons, and that's, that's a good first step. The problem is that there's so many chemicals out there that can be used as poisons that are going to be noxious to, to other animals. And there's just not a, a lot of regulation on agri- agricultural products, things like pesticides um, that that are fairly readily available. And so even if you ban those, you're still going to see black markets opening up where those are still available. And if you ban one chemical, that doesn't mean that another can't also be used. So I really believe that we have to have a more community-based approach to solving this problem that's going to involve working with local communities and trying to reduce the conflict so that they don't feel the need to poison in the first place. And along those lines, um, I'm now working with the Ruaha Carnivore Project, which is based in Ruaha National Park in Tanzania. And they're a group that focuses on on just that, on trying to work with pastoralists to reduce um, incidences where lions or hyenas or other predators are killing their livestock. And as a result, they they don't have as much poisoning happening there, and they're able to reduce retaliatory killings of carnivores in general. So I think it's those kinds of activities are key, and we need those throughout East Africa. Yeah, for sure. So uh, tell me, tell me a little bit more about about your current position at at the North Carolina Zoo, um, and and how that um, how that position is sort of uh, allowing you to continue to pursue pursue um, vulture conservation and, and research. So my current position at the zoo is is focused on international conservation, regional conservation projects, and also zoo-based research. And so part of the mission for the zoo is to save species in the wild. And we're able to do that by, by focusing on various conservation projects in the field. So we're now working in Tanzania. We're working in, in collaboration with the Wildlife Conservation Society and with Ruaha Carnivore Project to try and reduce the threats to vultures in Ruaha and Katavi National Parks. Along those same lines, we're also um, starting to set up some monitoring in those areas. Tanzania has, has never had systematic counts of vultures, and so working with park staff and training rangers on, on how to conduct vulture surveys is hopefully going to be a way to set up long-term monitoring efforts so that if we do start to see dramatic declines, we can do something about them. Currently, southern Tanzania appears to have fewer threats and a more stable vulture population. But the, the problem with vultures is it doesn't take much to see very rapid declines. As we saw in Southeast Asia, you can lose 95% of your birds in 10 years. So you need to have consistent monitoring efforts if you're going to be able to react before those declines become too severe. So 
are I mean, do you think that we? Do, I mean, do you think that um, uh, conservationists and, and biologists and um, uh, uh, folks that are working to address this issue? I mean, do you think they are reacting fast enough in East Africa to prevent the type of large-scale vulture declines that we saw in Southeast Asia? Asia. I think there's a lot of really great efforts going on, but I do think this is a very difficult problem to solve. The The really terrible thing about poisoning is is it only takes a few incidences and a few people doing it. So even if you're working with the community and you've got 90% buy-in and, and um, 90% of the people not poisoning, if you've still got 10% poisoning, that could be enough to to knock out the entire East African vulture population. So I think it's, it's getting the message to every last person and, and really getting buy-in from everyone in the community. And, and that is a very challenging thing to do. Um, so far, I think poisoning kind of continues as it has been, and, and it's been more or less an escalating problem over the last 10 years in East Africa. And I think you add on top of that some of the new poaching issues that we're seeing um, particularly for elephants, and there's there's just a lot of management um, challenges to be dealt with in East Africa right now. Yeah, so you you brought up the poaching issue and uh, the the effect that that has on um, on vulture populations. Um, I mean, what what exactly is is the interaction that's that's going on there? Um, there's sort of two pieces to that. So one one piece is that there there has been some direct killing of vultures. So if you've already killed an elephant and you've got a large carcass lying around, a poacher could potentially add to their profits by, by putting some poison on that and killing some vultures as well. Vulture heads have value in um, the witchcraft trade in, in parts of South Africa in particular, but even, even in other regions in, in Africa. So there is some incentive to kill vultures for that purpose. More common than that, I think, is is that rangers use vultures to find poached animals. So if an elephant dies, the best way to find it is going to be to look for vultures in, in the air and to follow those vultures to the elephant carcass. And poachers know that also. So what we've started to see is poachers intentionally poisoning, poisoning elephant carcasses um, in order to kill vultures as well, because they know that the vultures are kind of they're the assistance for the rangers. They're they're helping the rangers to to find poachers, and so the poachers, as a result, want to eliminate vultures. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and I remember from the time that that I spent um, w- w- with you in, in in Kenya. You know, that's how we found carcasses. I mean, we were trying to find uh, uh, you know animal carcasses uh, so that we would have the ability to, to trap vultures for your research. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's relatively easy to find uh, dead animals out there because you just look for these massive um, kettles of, you know, uh, hundred hundreds of vultures, um, and you can see them from miles and miles around. Circling vultures doesn't always indicate a carcass, but, but a lot of the time it does. And they're definitely a good indicator for that. And, um, you know, even the, the work that we've done talking with Maasai pastoralists, if they lose a cow, they do the same thing. They use vultures to, to try and find that cow, you know, if they're concerned that it's, that it's been killed or, or that it's died. Um, 
they can use the vultures to recover their cow. So everyone kind of is aware of that that role and, and that value of being able to use the vultures to find carrion. And unfortunately, poachers are now starting to react to that. There, I mean, there's a lot of I, I guess there's a lot of reasons to be concerned about about vultures um, in, in East Africa in particular. Um, and, you know, we, we, we definitely want to uh, do everything that we can to make sure that that this extremely diverse guild of scavenging species in, in East Africa remains intact. Um, I guess I'm wondering, you know, if there's anything that that you can point to um, for folks, you know, who are living outside of East Africa um, and anything that they could do to um, to help in any way, um, even if it's indirectly. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's tricky. Most of the declines for African vultures are fairly independent of things happening in the U.S., um, but the threats to vultures are are the same worldwide, and poisoning is, is a major problem for, for raptors and for vultures pretty much everywhere that they're found. So keeping that in mind, I think people people will poison rats um, or, or other animals and not realize that that's going to have a trickle-down impact. We, we lost a pair of red-tailed hawks in New York City from someone poisoning rats, and I, I don't think people make that connection. So, so being mindful of those kind of things is important. Um, in addition to that, I, sometimes people think that if you if you litter, if it's biodegradable, then then that's okay. But the reality is that um, littering along the edges of roads, even if it's biodegradable, actually ends up attracting animals to the road, and those animals often will end up being roadkill. And on top of that, you then can have vultures and other scavengers also getting hit by cars. So I think being mindful of of litter and not littering anything, regardless of whether it's biodegradable or not, is an important and useful way to reduce wildlife mortality. Are, are there ways that folks can help sort of spread awareness um, about vulture conservation issues in general, um, you know, both in East Africa, but also uh, sort of all around the globe? Yeah, definitely. So I think... Um, you know, vultures are such an underappreciated species, but they're a species that plays a really critical role. And so being able to, to teach people that um, and telling your kind of just telling friends and family that I think is, is a useful step towards vulture conservation. So along those lines, there's the International Vulture Awareness Day, which is celebrated in September each year. And that's an exciting time to, to really learn a lot more about vultures and, and raise awareness about some of the threats that are happening to them. Um, so we actually participate in that event at North Carolina Zoo. This year we're going to be focusing not just on vultures but on all raptors um, and celebrating the importance of those species and, and getting people thinking about how they can protect them. Fantastic. Well, that's good to hear. Yeah. And, and I know that there are lots of zoos and um, other conservation organizations uh, all around the globe that participate in um, uh, events and host events uh, in celebration of International Vulture Awareness Day. Um, so, yeah, that's definitely something. We'll, we'll, uh, I'll throw some links in on the show notes um, to uh, uh, help folks find um, events that that might be hosted uh, in in their area for International Vulture Awareness Day. Yeah, but I think so so much of conservation is focused on the the sort of attractive cuddly animals, but there are all of these other 
underdog species that may not be as attractive, but definitely play really critical roles in the environment. So protecting them as well um, has a lot of important ramifications for the health of our environment and, and the health of us. Yep, absolutely. Um, and vultures are, yeah, maybe not the most attractive animals, um, but they do play a really critical role in the environment. It's really important to conserve them. So thanks a lot, Corinne, for coming on the program and sharing all this really valuable information about uh, vultures and vulture conservation with us. Um, yeah, and thanks for everything that you do. Thanks for having me. All right, that was our interview with Corinne Kendall from the North Carolina Zoo. Conservation issues like this one are not easy to hear about. The poisoning of these animals seems so senseless, and the solutions seem to be so far out of our reach. In a lot of ways, the situation for vultures in East Africa seems hopeless, but it is important to think about how lucky we are to have people like Corinne who are absolutely dedicated to finding a solution. Without Corinne's research, we wouldn't even be aware of the full scale of the situation that vultures in East Africa are facing, and without this information, it would be impossible to take the steps that are necessary to prevent a crash in these populations. As Corinne mentioned, it is difficult to find ways for folks outside of East Africa to have a direct impact on these issues. That said, there are important steps that folks can take to help vultures all across the planet. Wherever you live, you can help reduce vulture declines and vulture poisoning by refraining from the use of harmful rodenticides uh, and by disposing of any and all garbage in a proper receptacle. And if you are a hunter or if you know people who hunt, talk to them about using non-lead ammunition. Now, many of our listeners are surely aware of this issue, uh, but lead-based ammunition fragments as it passes through an animal fragmenting into hundreds of almost microscopic pieces of lead, which are often consumed by vultures and other scavenging species. This continues to be the leading cause of mortality for the endangered California condor, which is North America's largest vulture. But it is also a significant cause of mortality for many other scavenging species, including bald and golden eagles. You can check out the website for my feature-length film about this issue called Scavenger Hunt to learn more about this specific component of vulture conservation. Uh, you can find out more information about that film at scavengerhuntfilm.com. You can also help vultures by spreading the word about their peril. Find an International Vulture Awareness Day celebration near you this coming fall, or if you can't find an event close by, talk to your local zoo and convince them to participate. And, of course, you can watch and share the four short videos that we produced about Corinne's research and the poisoning of vultures in East Africa. We'll be re-releasing these videos this month over on the Eyes on Conservation video podcast, which you can find in iTunes, or you can watch all four of those videos on our website at eyesonconservation.org. Up on the show notes for this episode, we'll have additional information and links related to Corinne's research, as well as info on International Vulture Awareness Day. You can find the show notes at wildlensinc.org slash EOC14. That's wildlensinc.org slash EOC14. Thanks so much to everyone for listening to this week's show. The Birds and the Beats is produced by Ben Mirren. Our interview is produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky, and our theme music is by The Humans. Hey.